Let us come before God's throne in confession of our sins. Most merciful God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving to us your Son, who was despised and forsaken and rejected by those whom he came to save. And we confess that we are like them, we are sinners, and that it was for our sins that he suffered. It was for our faithfulness, faithlessness, our wickedness, our selfishness that he was pierced through. And we're grateful that he did that, that he laid down his life for a people like us. We can say that we would hardly claim that we would do the same. Even this week, Lord, we've been found lacking in our service for the King and to you. We've not loved you with our whole heart, nor did we love others as you have loved us. We've not lived and reflected the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, let our sin be clear in our eyes. Help us to see where we fall short. Help us to properly repent and turn our hearts again to you in newness of life. We ask that in your mercy you would forgive us and cleanse us in Selah. Lord, your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So hear our prayer and confession and grant us forgiveness and deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose glorious name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. Our God and Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we now have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Although formerly alienated from God and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe upon this and rejoice. Let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word to us begins in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 12 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of justice, to endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water should not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. 
rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. We'll turn now to Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might, might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 68, verses 7 through 18. Psalm 68. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, Mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Now? Now? Okay. I'll learn one of these times. I switched it. I think sometimes they take it off a of mute first so that they can record my voice while we're singing. <laughs> the first assignment was, uh, well, for me, it was Isaiah 40. But each one of us in that group was given a passage. And the passage was primarily to look at God. And so they were focused not primarily first and foremost on us, on things given to us to do, but on reflecting on, on God. And that's something that's hard for us to, to think about, to pray about. It's like staring into the sun because uh, reflecting on God, he's bigger than us. It's hard to, hard to meditate on the depth and the height of who he is. Our passage today is one of those kinds of passages. The fringes of it deal with us, but in order to do justice, we have to look and think and muse on Scripture, what Scripture says about God. We're finite, so we can't fit it all in our minds at one time, so we keep looking and looking and turning and turning, and in it we get then a picture of who, who God is. I, uh, what, what we're going to do, so we'll, we'll take care of the fringes first. I'm going to discuss why this is here. And then we're going to focus on that passage. I, I gave then in the bulletin, there is an, an outline which will help you in following the, the passage direct. But bef before we get there, let's open in prayer. Lord, we come into your presence as you have commanded and invited us to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, in what we heard already this morning. You didn't create in vain, and you didn't speak in secret. Instead, the word has come, it's near us. And so give us ears to hear, open our eyes to see the glories of our Savior Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So just as a reminder then, in the epistle of Colossians, remember it begins... And it ends with a series of greetings like many of Paul's letters. But the central part of the epistle is broken up into a prayer that composes verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 23. And then Paul's purpose. So he finds his purpose from out of the context of his prayer. And that's uh, chapter 1, verse 24, then through the first few verses of chapter 2. And then the rest of the epistle up to chapter 4, verse 6, is his admonition, his plea to, to the church at Colossae. Within this prayer, we're in part 3 of the prayer. The beginning of the prayer, he opened with thanksgiving for the work in Colossae because he's heard of what God is doing, how the gospel is at work, bearing fruit and increasing as it is in all the world. And then he transitioned to a prayer based on that thanksgiving in which he prayed that God would do even more of what he'd already done, that he would give more fruit, that he would increase the work more. And he, in his, in his very prayers, he told the Colossians, encouraged them and us on into this understanding of the will of God that can only come from him, out of which we bear fruit, the fruit of good work, and through which we increase then in the knowledge of God himself, giving way to endurance and patience, which comes only by the strength given from God, all leading to joyous thanksgiving. Out of that call, that prayer, that the church would produce joyful thanksgiving, we have then the reason for that thanksgiving which forms the praise of the rest of this prayer. And, and the bookends of that praise, so verse 12 through 14 and verses 21 through 23, are about us. We joyfully give thanks because of what God has done. And the first part, verses 12 through 14, you can see then there's an emphasis in God's redemption from the powers that enslaved us. He transferred us from... Um, he delivered us from the domain, the power of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He redeemed us. He bought us because we were enslaved. And he bought us into an inheritance of light. And so he's taking us away from the, the, the very power, the domain, the authority that enslaved us. On the other side of this bookend, in his prayer of praise... He says, we joyfully give thanks because not only has God transferred us, not only has he redeemed us from, 
from our enslavement, but he's reconciled us. So we were alienated. Now, no longer looking at the powers that enslaved us, but looking at ourselves. We were foreign to God. We were alienated, hostile against him. Instead of the lords that lorded over us being the enemies, we ourselves were the enemies. And he reconciled us then in his fleshly body to Christ, all for this purpose, that he might present us before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So you can think about it in this way. On the first half, he's telling us what God has done in bringing us out of one kingdom into another to give us an inheritance with the holy ones in light, as Hyde reminded us this morning. And on the other side, he's telling us that God has reconciled us to Christ as the fulfillment of his entire work in creation so that we might be the inheritance for Christ. In the middle, we have the foundation. Everything was made for him, by him, through him, to him. And this, this it's rightly a, a poem. You could make it a, a psalm in the middle, and, and we'll look at, at why. It's the foundation of all of this praise, the reason that there's security and redemption and in reconciliation, the reason that we have faith. And for the church in Colossae, everything that Paul wants to say flows out of this truth. If we can grasp this, which will take a, a lot of humility, and we know then who Christ is, joyous thanksgiving must flow forth, and out of that, the danger that befalls young Christians, the temptation to look away from Christ, will disappear. And so we'll see some of those things, but in this central praise, he's going to take elements of it throughout the rest of the epistle, and he's going to use those elements to, to teach us, because this is who Jesus is. So let's look then at that central part. I'm going to read it again, verses 15 through 20. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." All right, so if you grab your outline, this is, this is one way of looking at this passage. I need to find mine. Um, and what, what I want us to notice is I want us to notice how, it, how it's set up, and we'll, we'll be reminded of this as we, as we look through the specific elements of his praise. But uh, the, the broadest look at this poem is there's two halves. And, and you, you can see that. The two halves correspond first to creation. He created all things, something we know. But the second half corresponds to reconciliation or a new creation. He's reconciling all things to himself. And so there is then this, this parallelism in considering who the beloved son is. Uh, everything flows out of verse 13. Who is this beloved son? Well, he's the image of the, in, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It all flows then out of that. And we have, we have these two bookends in creation and in reconciliation that correspond to all that Christ has done and is doing. But within that, there's still a chiastic structure, so I tried to make it confusing for you. The first two verses, 15 and 16, parallel verses 18 through 20. And you can see each element lines up. And we have to observe how they flow one into the next. And also Paul wants us to make note of how they fit together. So there's specific observations that we can make about how creation and reconciliation fit within one another. And then verse 17 through the beginning of 18 forms the center of this poem. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. And in the very middle... 
you see this statement, in him all things hold together. So that's the center of the poem. That's, that's the final message, is that Jesus is the cohesion. He's the summation of all things, of creation, of new creation, of redemption, of rec- reconciliation from, be- from beginning to end. You can think about it in, in the way that John says that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is all things. We still don't quite know what that means, though. So then, looking further, I used all of the non-coloring type formats that you can get to. And you'll see I highlighted six words, seven words, in, in bold. These are a description of Jesus. He is the image of God invisible. He is the firstborn. He is before all things. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body the church. And he is the sum total, the holding of all things together. So, seven descriptions on purpose, with the central one being what holds the poem together and what holds the book together and what holds the whole world together. Within those, you'll see then that there's a a pairing. In creation, the beloved Son is the image of a God invisible, giving way to the firstborn of all creation. Those go together. On the other side, in the new creation, Jesus... The beloved son is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might become preeminent in in everything. Those also go together, and I'll I'll note their relationship. This gets rather confusing. Everything's kind of turned in on itself. So hang with me here. And then we, we already discussed how 17 and 18 fit together. They're parallel in creation. He's before all things in the new creation. He's the head of the church. Within that, then we have this description On the creation side, for in himself he created all things. All things through himself and to himself were created. In the heavens, on the earth, the visible, the invisible, thrones, lords, beginnings, powers. And on the reconciliation side, you see then similar language. In him he delighted all the fullness to dwell. Through him he reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross, whether on earth or whether in heaven. So you see this progression in prepositions on each side of creation, in, in him, through him, to him. And then again, underlined on the other side, in him, through him, to him. So we have these nouns that describe who Jesus is, and then we have prepositions about his relationship to all of creation work. And then one more thing highlighted, I put in all caps, eight times, He uses all, all things. And that flows out of the beginning of the prayer. In the beginning of the prayer, there's first seven repetitions in which all things come together in Christ. And here in this poem, we have seven and then seven plus one so that the final all is all things have been reconciled in him. In him, there's a new creation. All things will be reconciled. And we have to look then carefully at what that means. So, how do you... Hold this in your head. How do we think about Jesus and what, what is Paul after here? Part of it is, as he's praying that we would know the will of God, embedded in here, we know who God is. We know his will from the beginning to end because we know the person of the Savior. And it's out of that knowledge that springs forth wisdom and understanding and the fruit of work that he's going to call us unto. But I think... It's instructive for us to look at how Paul would pray this this prayer. So keep your finger in Colossians and turn with me then to Genesis 1. This is something that we see in, in John's gospel. And in fact, in many of the epistles, this is present in that the author meditates on Genesis and particularly Genesis 1. If you're, if you're going to start to describe all things, you start in the beginning. And so, so is Paul. He's describing all things in creation and reconciliation, and his meditation is from in the beginning. Last week we had a young man's study at, at Ben's house, and one of the lessons about interpretation is that we learn to interpret from Scripture. 
as Scripture interprets Scripture, as the New Testament interprets the Old, we, we learn the hermeneutic of interpretation from how God shows us how to do it. And embedded in here is one of the, the most expansive musings on a little, little piece of Scripture that, that you can imagine. So the beginning of our Bibles says, in the beginning God created. That's the framework that we need. In the beginning God created. And if you look further in the passage, then specifically with man, God created man in his own image. And we start with a presupposition of what that means. In the beginning is time-based. In the beginning, God created man. And in his own image, we have then a presupposition of what that, that means. In, in the image of God, so God created man as a reflection, as a likeness. And both of those things are true. But Paul, in meditating on Scripture, looks at it more expansively. So in the beginning, it's the word barashit, and it's composed of a preposition and then a noun, in the beginning, or just in beginning. And if you look at Paul's prayer, his prayer of praise, he's taking the expansion of all the meanings of both of those words. So you saw our list of prepositions, in him, through him, to him. So looking at creation now, not just as a point in time, but the preposition in as both being within the sphere of which God created, the agency by which he created, and the purpose for which he created, and then looking at the expansion of what the word beginning can mean, Rashid. It can, it can mean both temporal, in the beginning of of the history of mankind God created. But now Paul's helping us to think, well, what if the word beginning is not just a time but a person? And this should be somewhat familiar to us because we readily recognize it in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. John meditating on this same beginning, he sees God speak, let there be light, and he says that word God spoke is in fact not just a word, it's a person. God spoke the person of, of Jesus Christ and, and eternally begetting from him was this creational word. In the same way, we can see Paul thinking Jesus Christ is the beginning. Or if you look later down in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. Well, if you take a step back from that and you say God created man in his own image, what if that image was a person? And we have then the beginning of our poem. We were redeemed, we were transferred into the domain of the beloved son, into the kingdom of the beloved son, who is, who is the image of God. And notice his his uh, explanation of all of that in this poem. Who is the image of God invisible? Well, how do, we, how do we know that Jesus is the image of God invisible? Because all things were created through him. So the creating work of mankind was done through the agency in the, in the image of the person of Jesus. So we'll, we'll look at that uh, as, as well. But it, it can begin to help you think through this list. Jesus is the image from Genesis 1.27. He's also the firstborn. So that, that word bereshit can mean in the, the first fruits. So the first outpouring, and, and we'll look at uh, some scripture to support that as well. It can also mean that, that he's before, or the root word rosh can mean the head. So all of these ideas come together in Paul meditating on Genesis. Of course, he's inspired by the Spirit, and, but he's thinking about the breadth of what God is doing. And if you consider all that God tells us, packed with that level of density, who is Jesus? All things. Everything from beginning to end, the Alpha, the Omega, is composed, made for him. So let's look through this list, and we'll look then at the relationship from one to the other. We already said the poem begins with, who is the image of God invisible? John 1.18 says that no man has seen God at any time. God the Father is not visible to us. And yet simultaneously, 
later on in John 18, salvation only comes if we know him, if we see him. And so Jesus is the answer. He is the image in which we were created. Um, it may help to think of the way that the author of the Hebrew states this. He is the radiance of his glory. So thinking about what happens in creation in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it with an outpouring of himself in words. So using, using the Johannine meditation on that passage, Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, and he spoke. Well, Jesus is the express image, the exact representation of God. Now, we already know that later on in Scripture through the Incarnation. But even looking backwards into the beginning, in Genesis 1.27, looking a little more broadly at that passage, in his image, God created man. And if you just replace the word image with Jesus, in his image, Jesus, God created man, this idea comes together, in which always the visible God God invisible made through God visible the Son. Well, hold that thought for just a minute. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's been heresies brought forth out of, out of this verse because Jesus was not created but the firstborn has uh, a, a little bit more to it. If you would, turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy 21. So again, it has a relationship to the word beginning. He's the first fruits. He's the firstborn of all creation. But what, what is that relationship? Remember, we're discussing the beloved Son, who is the image of God invisible, the firstborn of all creation. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 15. Here, embedded in the law, we have this description. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. So we have a description then of both what the firstborn is. The firstborn is the beginning, the beginning of the father's strength. That's the, that's the same word for beginning, Bereshit, as we find in Genesis 1. The firstborn is the beginning of the father's strength. And then we have a right that's assigned to the firstborn. He has the right of inheritance. So he's the beginning of the strength and he has the right of inheritance. Now, in this passage, it's a law concerning the unloved. So the unloved son, if he happens to be your firstborn and you didn't love your wife, you still have to give him the inheritance and in, in Paul's praise, it's the beloved son who's done this work. He is the loved one, and so all the more he has the right of inheritance. Together, then, we have this image in firstborn. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 8. So we have embedded in these two ideas together that he is the beginning of the Father's strength, the outpouring of his strength, and he has the right of inheritance. But also when you combine those two ideas, we see there's, there's one more aspect to what God is doing. So Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For, we, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this is, this is looking in the incarnation. So we're fast-forwarding in history. But still, the purpose for which the image is called the firstborn is so that he might have many brothers. 
So when we think then that Jesus, the beloved Son, is the image of God invisible and the firstborn of all creation, it's with this purpose that there would be a host that follows after him. So Jesus, the firstborn, for whom all of creation is made. It's made as his inheritance. He, he owns it. He's the beginning of it. He's the end of it. And he is the firstborn of many, not created, but at the beginning, both in rank and in time. He's the first. Out of that, we see that there's a host to follow. The beginning created the heavens and the earth for man. And so in Genesis 1.27, he made us in his image. And we'll see then that in the progression of thought, Paul is also thinking about the purpose of mankind, made after the image of God, made for the purpose of, of uh, Psalm, Psalm 8. What is man that you consider him, the son of man? That you think of him, he's, he's a little lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor so that he might rule over all the works of your hand. And considering the same chapter in the Bible, man was made to be lifted up, but that could not be until man matured. Creation was not done in Genesis 1. The, the, the beginning of creation was accomplished, but the maturation of creation was not finished in Genesis 1. Instead, man had to mature to rule over all of God's works as his vice regent. All right, turn with me back then to Colossians. Everybody still hanging with me here? It's dense. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 16, he says, in thinking about the, the implications of this, he, by him, or in him, all things were created, in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have then the, the meditation on that preposition. If instead of just thinking about in the beginning, in time, now we think about within the sphere of Christ, in him, my translation says by him, and the, the Greek word en can be translated that way, but that's probably more appropriately to the, the middle preposition, through, so by the agency of, in, in the middle of that verse. So within him, in Christ, and we think about new creation, Paul uses that over and over and over again. You are found in Christ. Your life is in, in Christ, but creation also happened in Christ, within the sphere of Christ. He's over it, he's above it, he encloses it. Creation cannot be bigger than the God who created it. In him, all things were created. There's nothing, nothing made that didn't come by the expression, tension of his will. And so Paul, expanding on that, he says, in the heavens and on the earth on the earth. So in no location is there one single thing that wasn't made by the beginning, by the firstborn, by the image of the invisible God. All things were made in him. And then he expands the list even further. So you can think about a parallelism between the heavens and the earth. So what's going on upstairs and downstairs, the visible and the invisible. So Jesus has made the invisible God visible, but also we have invisible things to us, the things we can't see and the things we can see. Both, both what we can see and what we can't see all is within the sphere of the creation of the beloved Son. It all belongs to him. It all fits within his grasp. And he says it was all made through him. So he's the agent by which it was made. God spoke, he created, he breathed into life, mankind, and every other thing was made by the agency of Jesus in the middle of that verse. And then we, we see a, a, another list. So we have a first set of four, whether on the heavens, on the earth, whether thrones or dominions, or sorry, whether invisible, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. So he gives us this expanded list of the things that specifically have been made by him. This is, this is not exhaustive. But instead, he wants us to know specifically these things, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All these have been made through him, and perhaps even more surprisingly, for him, to him. So he is the creator, and they're made for his purpose, unto the end of Christ. And we'll see, see what that, that means 
in the second half of this poem. But this is, this is necessary for the Colossians specifically. So we already, we already saw in verse 13 that he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Uh, in the NASB, that word domain in verse 13 is the word authorities. It's the fourth word on this list. I don't know why they choose to trip us up by changing the English translation uh, from one verse to the next, but they do. And so we have this, this uh, sequence then, thrones, uh, dominions, and the, the, the word dominions here is, uh, the root word is lords, so from curios. It's the word powers used in other places. So whether those seated on the thrones or, or the specific powers on them themselves, and remember these can be in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. So we're talking about either mankind as, as lords and thrones or or those we can't see, the angels that we discover in, in the book of Daniel that uh, are, are superintending over forces. And for the Colossians, that's important. So we find then that, that these, uh, these give way to rulers and authorities. And we'll, the, the, those two words, the word rulers is the word arche, and the word authorities is the word exousia. They both have power. The word ruler is going to come up for us again. But specifically, he takes them, and there is, uh, if you flip over to chapter 2, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, verse 9, and in him you have been filled. He is the head over all rule and authority. So specifically, then he wants us to remind us that in creation, he created all thrones, dominions, rules, and authorities, and in the new creation, in the reconciliation in the church, he is the head over those rules and authorities. And we see how he's the head, how that works out then in chapter 2, verse 15. He takes the certificate of decrees against us. So mankind who he is exalting with himself, he takes the decrees against us, he nails them to the cross, and he disarms those rulers and authorities. So from beginning to end, they're made within him, through him, and for him. Uh, the application of that, of course, is for us, we can have no fear of thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities if the one who we are united to organically as the head of the body of the church is the very one who created them, who owns them, the one by which they're made, through whom they're made, for whom they're made. They are for his purposes. And if we already know his purpose within us, where he's bringing us to, there can be no counter-purpose which prevails. He is the head of all things. Okay. Verse 17. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. That The word before, then, is, is uh, frequently used in compound words, so it would be just pros. And in, in English, the, 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 uh, the beginning of the word as pro, so the, the beginning, the first, the preeminence. It can have both temporal, again, and rank significance, but it's a summation of all that he's already said. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, and all things were made in him, for him, and through him. He is before. He's at the front of all of it. We'll skip the holding together and then look at the new creation. So beginning in... in uh, the second half of verse 18. Who is the beginning? Uh, in the English translation, uh, at least the NASB here, mine doesn't say that word who, it just says he is, but it's, it's perfectly balanced in the Greek. So who is in verse 15a and 18b is the same, the same construction. Who is the image of God invisible? Who is the beginning? The word beginning... So we kind of have to do what Paul did. Paul took the Hebrew word in the beginning and considered all the range of meanings. And we have to do the same because now we're taking from Paul's Greek translation and thinking about the range of meanings of this word for beginning, which is the word arche. We just heard it in the last section. He is, he, by him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers. Rulers is the word it's in the plural there. But 
here in the next section, he is the arche. So he is the beginning, or you could translate it, he is the ruler. He's over all things. He is the firstborn from the dead. So that one's easy. You see the parallelism from the first creation to the new creation and this language of firstborn, but now he's not the firstborn of all creation, but he's the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus, the ruler of all things, the beginning of all things new, is also the firstborn from the dead. And so now we're looking all the way into the New Testament. Jesus has raised up from the grave. He's been exalted in Psalm 2 to the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's been enthroned. He's been lifted up from the dead. And again, we have this emphasis that he's the firstborn, meaning there's a host to come after him. Lazarus was not the firstborn from the dead because he went on to die again said, Jesus, the one who was elevated to the throne, to the fulfillment of God's purpose for man. Remember, God made mankind, he planted him in the garden to multiply, to fill, to subdue, to rule over the work of his hands. He's the vice regent of God, the one that's showing forth his power. And Jesus, when he's elevated to the right hand of the Father, having been made man incarnate, humbled himself to the point of death, and then raised up, He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's going to bring with him a host. Now Paul adds this note, for this reason, so that he might be in all things first, or so that he might have first place or preeminence in everything. Paul's reminding us again and again and again, Jesus is the beginning. He is the first. He is preeminent. And for the church at Colossae, Everything else fades away. We look to Christ for all things. One of the things we can learn out of this poem um, also uh, comes from, from Proverbs 8 that was in the scripture reading this morning. I'm just going to turn there. Proverbs 8 and verse 22. There's a reflection here in scripture and it's one that shows up in many intertestamental books as well. But we have it in the book of Proverbs, so we'll look at it there. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, or Yahweh acquired, or it could be translated, Yahweh begot me at the beginning of his work, before his works of old. From everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he had established the heavens, I was there. Of course, Solomon's talking about wisdom. Wisdom was with God at the beginning of creation. But Paul, in his poem, he's looking back and he's saying, even, even before there was Christ, the beloved Son, as the image of God, the ultimate possessor of all wisdom. All wisdom and knowledge comes through Christ. He demonstrated it at the beginning in the first creation. He's demonstrated it again in the new creation. And so for that church and for our church, we find in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you go looking for wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ, you'll find nothing but empty air. We learn knowledge in all kinds of places. And so as a scientist, I study to, to increase knowledge. But if that knowledge is not founded in Christ, ultimately it has no root, it has no meaning. And you can see that. You can see that going on in our society right now. So with much knowledge, and we, we've advanced much knowledge, by the grace of God we've learned a lot. We've learned much about who we are, how bodies are made up. There's medicine that works a little bit, not usually when you want it, but the rest of the time. And that, that's knowledge. There's wisdom and skill in the hands of the doctors, but at the same time, not rooted in Christ, you see the end of it. Our, our, I was reminded, John said, uh, I guess last week, 
reminder of what's going on in the world around us, professing to be wise, they became fools. In the wisdom of the world, all the knowledge grown around us, not rooted in Christ the beginning, it turns into a puff of vanity because they can take the body, dissect it, learn everything about it, and in the end, they don't even know the difference between a man and a woman. You see how all knowledge disappears apart from Christ. At the beginning, the image of God spoke. He spoke in wisdom, and he created all things. And so for the church in Colossae, the problem is looking for wisdom outside of Christ. And we'll look at the specifics of that in the coming weeks, but we need to be reminded again and again, all wisdom and knowledge is rooted in Christ. If it doesn't grow out of him, no matter how great it looks, it's emptiness. So he is the head of the body. Uh, sorry, I didn't cover that part yet. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have preeminence in everything. And then verse 19, we have this parallel description with the same set of prepositions. For in himself delighted all the fullness to dwell. Or the, the, the helpful translation is, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. What, what, what does that mean? And in the Greek there, it doesn't tell us that the Father did it or, or that the full, what the fullness is, but we see it in chapter 2, verse 9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this is the first half of, of the reconciliation. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. So not only is he the creator of the heavens and the earth, ruler over all thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, and authorities, in him all the fullness of deity dwells. So Jesus is God. This puts to, to bed the heresy that he is the first created one. Instead, we, we have a reminder of that. The creeds tell us that he was eternally begotten of the Father. So he's never created but eternally proceeding forth from the, from the Father. And he is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is God himself. In him all the fullness of deity dwells. That particular expression is important in the Old Testament. Remember that every time God's house was built, we see God coming to dwell and to fill, specifically fill, the tabernacle in the end of Exodus or the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. The fullness of God comes to dwell within his house. And now in this new creation, we're told that Jesus here in the abstract is the temple. He is the house of God. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwells within him. And that's critical for this line of argument because... That's the first preposition. The fullness of, of God dwells in him, but also through him, he's reconciling all things to himself. So now put these pieces together. In Christ, all was created. And in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. Now you have creation and deity dwelling side by side in the person of Christ. And so he is the one who can bring together those who are at enmity. Through him, all things were reconciled to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. I'm running out of time, so we won't take this up this week, but next week we'll have to discuss then what does the word reconcile actually mean. If all things in heaven and on earth are being reconciled through him and to him, what does that mean? We know it's parallel in thought to creation. All things were created in him, through him, for him. And now the fullness of the deity dwells in him so that through him all things are reconciled to him. Jesus is bringing the purpose of creation to its fullness. And the reason that this poem takes two halves is because God created the heavens and the earth. He put man in it. Man was a baby. And man has to be grown up, matured to the purpose for which God made him. God made him as the vice regent but within, within that sequence of time, sin entered in. And so now you have two events that have to take place. Man both has to be matured and he has to be reconciled. Otherwise, that purpose for which God made the inheritance of his son, the creation of, of the earth filled with mankind as the regents to rule and to give him glory, will not be fulfilled. 
And so for us, the encouragement is all of this takes place within Christ. All things are through him and for him, so he will bring it to an end. So then coming back to the middle of the poem, he's before all things in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. We see how this new creation is progressing. Parallel to he is before everything, all of creation is his headship over us. Remember, this is the same root word in Hebrew. He is the head. He's the head of the body, the church. And so in the epistle to the Colossians, everything flows out from the head. He's the head over all rule and authority, and we have to hold fast to the head, chapter 2, verse 19, from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by joints and growths and ligaments with a growth is growing from God. So everything flows from this head who is the beginning, who's brought reconciliation. There is no other truth that exists outside of him. To the end that, chapter 1, verse 18 he, in him, all things hold together. So what is it that holds together? The first creation, the new creation. So from Genesis to Revelation, all things are held together by Jesus. Embedded in here are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. We, we know them. In some sense, they seem simple. But step back and consider that the one who died on the cross is God incarnate, and not only God incarnate, the God who made the heavens and the earth and for whom the heavens and the earth were made. The reason that the universe sticks together, the reason is the same reason that we can sit together in this room, the reason that we can have peace with one another is because Jesus sticks in the center of it and he holds it all together. So it's the same root reason that, uh, that the, the atom doesn't blow apart, right? The, the, the nucleus is filled with protons, the electrons uh, float around it, and then when you go to try to make nuclear energy, you're trying to bust those apart. But if the, if the whole world did that, it would, it would be a giant atomic bomb. But Jesus is holding all things together. And so we can think about that in physical creation, but it's equally true in this new creation made of people as God is making all things new. He holds us together through the power of Christ. He's the sticking force of the universe. And another way to, to translate that would be that he is the sum total. All things find both their ontology, the, the, the purpose for which they're made, and their teleology, the, the end to which they're coming in Christ. Or Paul says it an, another way in, in 1 Corinthians and, and Ephesians. He is our all in all. He's everything in everything. So the, the the thing to walk away from this as you muse about who Jesus is and how, how God tells us about him in Scripture, he is all. None of us exists outside of him. We're made for him. Every, every breath that we breathe, everything that we do, the reason that we are brought and reconciled and saved is for the Son. We are his inheritance, and because we're inheritance, his, we're here as his inheritance, we have the joy of having our own inheritance within him. And Paul folds language on top of language so that here at the center of all things, where Jesus owns everything, he's made everything, he's the agent for all things, we find our purpose. So what's going to come out of this passage in the next section of the letter is Paul's going to say his purpose. It's embedded in Jesus as the rock. He sees the will of God in bringing and making all things new to the end of creation. And he says, my purpose is founded in that. I'm, I'm part of that work as the body of Christ under the head of the church. He's making all things new. If you would, stand with me. And let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the gift of the Son. We thank you that you chose to express yourself through him. He exegetes you so that we get to know the invisible God. And Lord, we thank you this morning that by the agency of Jesus within the realm of the Son and for his good pleasure you made us. And we thank you again because even after sin, he redeemed us, he bought us, and he's brought us near to you to the extent that we can be in your house, we can worship you, we can have righteousness that comes from our Savior Jesus. And so, Lord, it's our prayer that you would be pleased with us. Help us to grow in our understanding of this Savior that we serve, to be in awe of him, to proclaim his praise with a loud voice because he's done every good work and everything we have comes from him. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.